Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly talk show. I'm Chris McCormack, Associate Editor at Art Monthly, and today I'm joined by Tom Snow, who's recently completed his PhD at UCL in London, Sarah Jaspan, who is a writer and editor based in Manchester, and Amy Bird, who is also a writer and editor, but based in London. Uh, Amy will be discussing the art scene in Rotterdam, including the work of Gelatin, Teresa Margulies, Annika Yee, as well as, the, as well as why Witter de Wiz Gallery is considering changing its name. Uh, Sarah will be thinking through the term CRIP, which reconsiders estim- uh, d- uh, d- uh, descriptions of disability and, and was subject to a day-long conference at the ICA recently. But first, Tom reflects on Chad Elias's new book, uh, Posthumous Images, Contemporary Art and Memory, uh, memory Politics in Post-war, Post-Civil War Lebanon. Um, I had a few hours with the book this afternoon, uh, Tom, uh, and I found it remarkably rich in its overview uh, of a complex and fractured history of a country and artists emergent from that context. Um, Perhaps we could begin by mapping some of that terrain um, and the period the book looks at and some of the artist Elias draws upon. Yeah, um, I think it is. It's a really really important book. Um, As I mentioned in the article, it's almost surprising that it's the the first book-length study that addresses um, these artists and this body of work that otherwise has had so much success in and prominence in, in, in international exhibitions, entering into internationally significant collections, including the Tate here in London. Um, but it's also a sophisticated approach to um, these artworks that have been written about in several contexts, whether part of thematic academic essays in October Journal of the Text mm-hmm. or, or, or in multiple exhibition catalogues. And I think one of the strongest parts of the book is that Elias really states the claim for the kind of presence of the images, the presence of these artworks staging kind of interventions in discourses, rather than just kind of being, you know, the kind of cliche of artworks being mirrors mm-hmm. to a world or a situation. And and, and in many ways, that's, that's kind of a product of how art, the artists, including Rabbi Murray, um, Walid Rad uh, approach the making of artworks, but it's also I think you know it, it can be overstated how many art historians or critics get that wrong, and therefore you know they em- the emphasis that 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 um, that plays in Chad's uh, critical reading of the works is 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 um, is, is commendable. It's really good, mm-hmm. and I think I mean not to sound too simplistic, although this I think does map some of that subject area, which is that. Uh, because the uh, situation, or the you know the, the the civil war is so complex and has riddled the history with so many uh, complexities and kind of inabilities to discern or really kind of map what happened, uh, artists have had to find new ways to kind of picture that, um, and pro- so therefore there's a kind of production of new ways to imagine that history. And he talks a lot about the different kinds of the thread of history, and how that thread is kind of escape the present in a way for sure um and it, it seems interesting that it's so uh, present amongst uh, many of these artists that he discusses i mean you know one thing to say is that you know this like you're quite right there's so many intersecting strands to this you know not least um you know the civil war 75 till 1991 in fact yeah. the end of the civil war the date itself is disputed 
because there's no finite point where, Mm. you know, know, Israeli occupation leaves or even kind of the after effects or the trauma that's inherent within society suddenly stops. Of course it doesn't, and that's true for most conflicts. But even insofar that there's not an agreed date upon when the civil war ends is kind of interesting. And within the country, there's no high school curriculum. There's no official history. Um, and And it's... trying to make sense of, 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 of growing up in that situation, which many of these artists did, you know, many of them in Beirut. Um, making sense of that situation is the way that they approach making artwork. So it's, in a sense, it's, it's kind of a montage, it's a discursive montage as, which, as much as it mm-hmm. is a material montage. And many of the artworks do deal with um, found footage, found images that are then brought together in ways that question the agency of history alongside the agency of fiction and in a sense state the claim that those two things may converge more than is conventionally thought. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to, for me, you know, when you think about that culture and that context, I mean, it's similar to something like I remember uh, Reem Fada talking about Palestine, actually, and how every day is like living on an earthquake. And because of that, there was an inability to kind of picture or even fathom the edges of one's experience. And it seems to me that these artists also embrace or have that as well. It's their way of dealing with a situation that is always out of their control or slipping past them. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, these. this is, again, this is what, Chad so skillfully negotiates that you know the kind of simultaneous ability for these artists to approach this incredibly complex narrative without without offering offering any kind of premature or banal resolve like the artworks are really kind of sites of research mm-hmm. and and viewing many of them is kind of that experience and you know he what he what he what he what I think is really good about the book is that he takes well-known scenarios like maybe the great example is Walid Raad's Atlas Group yeah. which you know he famously kind of duped the art world in the 2000s and 2000s um, so people thought that there was this you know independent initiative for, uh, made up of researchers and academics who were trying to excavate the history of the Lebanese civil war in the country where it didn't exist mm-hmm. and when these works were exhibited at um again, international biennials, mainly places outside of Lebanon, um, people were fooled and they thought that this was really a... This was like a serious, um, you know, historically faithful project when, in fact, Rad was making it all up. Mm. He was certainly using found images that he found in archives, but he was subjecting them to his own, I guess, distorted memories, but also his own fictions that he created where gaps necessarily were. Um, and what's good about the book is that whereas many international writers have written about this aspect of his work and others as kind of um, demonstrating how kind of the ungraspability of the whole of globalization, ungraspability of the world, Chad kind of takes a step back and says, well, actually, what if we... What if we interrogate these works from the position of Lebanon, if you like? Mm-hmm. And in that, it's really the, the, the book is really woven in a very sophisticated um, understanding of history mm. from the conceptual basis, but also, you know, he's clearly engaged with vocal histories, as many of the artists do as well, and really draws out what is specific to this situation rather than it being used to kind of demonstrate 
one thing after another, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and it's interesting that he chooses to end the book, or the dates of the book, rather, around the 1991 period, if I'm right in thinking, because that coincides specifically with the amnesty law that was mm -hmm. brought in. And yeah. that seems to trigger a different kind of argument that's, I guess, moves beyond even this book, perhaps. But uh, do you want to talk a bit about what that law did and how that set up or triggered a numerous sort of thinkings so if i can remember correctly the law is called yeah the law it's the amnesty law of 91 and and really it was it was really placed really displaced reconciliation because what it allowed people to do was declare the missing and i say that in inverted commas dead in order to have in order for their family to have access to their estates to their finances with no with no real um uh, um, legal infrastructure put in place to, in a, try and find out if these people were dead, and b, investigate their deaths. Mm. So it was literally just a bureaucratic piece of paper that allowed someone, someone's relatives, to go through the trauma of signing, um, you know, signing their official record from missing to being dead in order to get access to funds property frequently mm. um, in a situation where they really had no choice mm -hmm. you know yeah because you mentioned the specifics of that where it's uh, an estimated 18,000 civilians that were kidnapped murdered mm -hmm. during the civil war and are absent from any kind of governmental list and that that it, that exempts or rather it effectively exempted militias from criminal prosecution with the exception of assaults of political figures and religious leaders yeah um, so many of these many many people that were involved um, as militias were yeah were not brought to justice in any way so really it's not you know it's it's in it's as much in the material infrastructure of the city as the populace that you know inhabits it that this trauma is you know it, it really exists within not just the city beirut i should say throughout lebanon and there's a work uh uh, I'm trying to. It's is it uh, Murray's uh, three posters? Yeah, and yeah. Zattery's All Is Well. Both these works touch upon that particular subject. So All Is Well, Zattery's um, All Is Well is a, is a kind of fascinating work. So it's 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 actually a great example of of how these artists have you know really staged an examination of the intersection between memory cultures, visual technologies. Um, the 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 and this is something that Chad brings into the discussion. The work is actually called well, the Arabic word for the work is al sharit, which is mm -hmm. tape, which can also mean videotape, and it's a video work. And he 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 draws a camera on one aspect of the work. He he looks at school children who hail from um, a certain village that's uh, in the um, in the, in, in the south of Lebanon. Um, or at least they claim to hail from that village. The reality is, is that none of them have ever lived there because they were born um, in kind of a localised exile. They were born in a refugee camp, still in Lebanon, but not in the occupied south. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about the work is that the, the children are in their school classroom really kind of vividly describing the beauty of their hometowns and their village and how perfect living there was mm -hmm. but they'd never visited never mind lived there so it's about the intergenerational uh, passing on of information and really kind of 
allows us to really consider what are the politics of nostalgia, because this is a false nostalgia embedded within the children's minds. Whether it's faithful, whether it's positive, cynical, whatever, kind of doesn't matter. The kind of the point is that people that, that these children, and, in, and you know, it spreads throughout the, throughout um, uh, for many people in the country that that this uncertainty of what is history, what is fiction, is kind of a necessary way of navigating everyday mm-hmm. life. Yeah, I, partic- I remember like, I, there's one line that I, I liked. Uh, you know, I thought was compelling in in Chad's uh, Chad Elias's thoughts uh, when he talks about that. Uh, the subject Lebanon can provide the grounds for the radical remembering of the past and the reimagining of futures in the present haunted by a spectre of failed left political projects and the defeat of multicultural and secular forms of nationalisms in the region mm-hmm. and I think um, when we think about the idea of reenactment or any kind of return to something um, and you know you mentioned nostalgia there but it's this is there a radical way or is there a way to break something in order to reach something different uh, other than the kind of calcifying and the particular ability of it to be then reused, let's say, mm. by something like the right. So, uh, or other kinds of very political dogmas. Chad Lies, he gives us a bit of a history of this and, and much of it is through the work of Rabbi Murray and he looks at how uh, a pan-Arabism um, in, 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 the, in the 50s and 60s was kind of displaced and co-opted by the politics of Hezbollah. So it became, you know, this secularised pan-Arabist socialist movement became co-opted by a radical religious, religiously orientated organisation. You know, we see it in so many different circumstances. You know, radical organisation... Radical organizations can kind of, you know, co-opt the desperate and the precarious. It's mm. a, it's a narrative as as old as man itself. Um, I think that the book doesn't necessarily, it, whilst it gives us a really great history of that and how it's been negotiated in artworks, the the book itself, I don't think, addresses those theoretical questions as much as it might actually, and and you know the politics of the spectre and hauntology are really kind of are words that we see a lot in art history and art criticism in recent years. Um, but f- actually quite a, few, quite, a, quite a few uses of those terms don't really address the kind of resonance of Marx within that. Mm. And, and I wonder if that's what you're thinking about mm. when you ask about how can those histories be, mm. you know, um, um, rediscovered. And yeah... yeah. Sorry. I think one work like uh, Joanna Hadjit Thomas and Khalil Joyhege, uh, that work about the uh, the revolution, you know, the sort of the rockets, the Lebanese rockets. Oh, the Lebanese Rocket Society. Yeah, I yeah. think for me that has such a kind of uh, the possibility to do that. I think that's an, quite an extraordinary piece of work, um, just to place this other kind of history around trying to discover. Well, you know, the actual effect, Lebanon were trying to go to the moon at one point. And but that they, was so integrated yeah. in Cold War politics as well, yeah. right? And, and, and kind of its whole practice was, 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 was about kind of forging an independent Lebanon. But how, those, how that history is, is rediscovered and remobilized mm. from, from the left, I think, is, 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 is maybe not so much addressed in the book. Mm. How, do you, how do you, I guess, one of those questions within... You know, Marx says there's a spectre haunting Europe. Is that 
we can't forget history, but we have to throw off the shackles of oppression. Mm. And that's a really pertinent question for, I guess, many societies today that are looking back nostalgically or with cynicism to, you know, leftist movements in the post Second World War context is, is how do we how do we read how do we how do we how do we I mean it's a crisis of the left in itself. How do we how do we move beyond inherent failure? Mm. That's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> Amy, I know you uh, visited the Lebanon yes. and Beirut specifically uh, two years ago. Um, yes, um, I went there, well, it, for quite a particular, well, for a different kind of purpose to get a better understanding of um, the contemporary art scene now after this particular generation of artists, mm. um, having knowing very little about art from the Arab region in general and particularly wanting to go to Beirut to meet, um, yeah, emerging artists really. Um, to see what their practice constitutes now, particularly after the civil war, and um, it was wasn't what I was expecting at all. Um, there was a sense of frustration around um, th this kind of long shadow cast by this particular generation of artists on the contemporary practice in uh, Lebanon. And also, everyone, every artist I met does have a very personal history, and it, it, it was a sense of frustration that they, you know, they want to. Um, account for their family's experience within the war. Everyone I met, I, I've had various studio visits with artists and they all said, oh yes, well, you know, my, my house was bombed and we had to leave here because of the bombing or um, I saw my father get shot or some really horrific accounts, which doesn't actually, I was surprised that, you know, for certain artists, these experiences didn't manifest in their work. And actually there was many artists who were working more with music and other kind of um, visual languages or cultural forms to kind of move away from these ideas, well, these, these fictions and these modes of representation, mm. really, because I feel like they didn't have any, um, well, just were a sense of frustration, really, wanting to move away from that generation. I mean, it's, it's kind of unsurprising, isn't it? You know, there's, there's, that, that, that people will feel that they, they live in the shadow of either a, a moment of conflict and crisis or its popularisation, let's sure. say, through art. That, you know, it's, it's yeah. unsurprising, and it's, and it's a really interesting point how... Um, uh, you know, that the, the, the newer generation might want to reject that and, and forge its own kind yeah, of Yeah, and they were also yeah. hugely suspicious of me as a curator going there, oh, really? having had Catherine David go and well, maybe we stage this ask. landmark exhibition. They're like, why are you coming to find? What are you looking for? Are you looking for more images of conflict? Because that's not we're not interested in making yeah. those anymore. Yeah, I that's think not that surprising. Was, yeah. And also, I, I should say that... You know, uh, forms of conflict are still ongoing in Lebanon. The, pro the proximity to Syria was very much at the forefront of the mind of many artists that I met. We were deeply troubled with um, what once was being a very close relationship to Damascus is now severed completely. Well, yeah, I mean, but also, you know, people, I mean, again, it's, you know, maybe we can look forward to Chad's volume two, but, you know, the seed, many people forget that the Cedar revolutions were kind of, you know, came before the so-called Arab Spring, and they were a really, really important moment for... Um, how many people used visual technologies within activism and, and utilised online platforms in order to kind of present a different image internationally mm -hmm. as well as nationally of Lebanon, for sure, absolutely. And I think one thing I, that, that, that struck me while I was there was the, um, the avant-garde music scene that's there, which was, um, I actually reviewed a Nottingham Contemporary Exhibition at the beginning of the year, which was um, sounds from the Middle East, basically. Artists who were working with, well, cultural forms of music. And for me, that certainly struck me as the most the most amount of innovation happening mm. within art practice there yeah. was to do with not particularly with a visual representation 
um, there was like a certain freedom um, and experimentation in other forms of production. Mm. Once upon a time, I guess that was kind of also the exciting thing about this generation of artists that they were actually kind of working with so many different medias you know archival footage and everything and kind of not being con so concerned with what are the traditional materials of art mm. so, i mean so that kind of generation progress progression is 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 um seems to me like potentially a, a, a kind of a really amazing and and positive mm. thing actually and i think there's also um the, the overall aesthetic of this post-Civil War generation of artists, um, it's incredibly tasteful photography. I did meet a number of artists as well who felt very resistant to that, particularly within the Arab region. I know that Akram Zatari has the um, the uh, image archive. The Arab Image Foundation. Exactly, mm -hmm. the name escapes me. But um, And there were other artists that I met that were looking at other forms of Arab studio portraiture that was very, very far removed from this very tasteful studio photography. So I think it's really trying to um, move forward, I think, in mm. general mm. and beyond. But, I mean, it's a necessary history to write as well because, as Absolutely. you said, there is no history. Well, especially, yeah. And Hariri's son was just, who is now the Prime Minister, was just a prisoner in... I'm not sure if I'd say this on the radio. <laughs> But this is also an interesting point. When I was there, there was an election and they were um, every artist that I met was the, 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 the prime minister or the president that was being elected was a former war general who had been exiled and now come back. And now he was head of head of the state. Yeah. Um, and there was just complete disillusion with yeah. the current. Polit I mean, it isn't. Yeah. The political system is is self-serving. It's not particularly democratic. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Hariri's completely in bed with the Saudis and the commercialisation of city space, yeah. It's yeah, that's one thing we didn't touch upon, and I will just bring... It is interesting, the renovation or the the way in which the architecture in the Lebanon has now... They've kind of airbrushed the history, and they've yeah. rebrushed, you know, the streets of themselves. You know, they've been tidied up, and the kind of the damage or the war damage has been erased. Absolutely, um, it hasn't at all. Oh well, that's how it. I think that's how it's pictured in I parts of the I saw so book. many and so many bombed out okay. buildings, and I, I was asking people. I mean, I, I, I just, because people were talking about the cost of living is incredibly expensive in Beirut, and um, I was like, why don't you squat these buildings if you're looking for studio space? You, all these, no one's got studio spaces in general. They all work from home, and I said, oh, you could squat these all these empty mansions, yeah. and that thought, like, what are you talking about? That was a horrendous thing to say, and I think it's to do with ideas of property. It's very different there. So m many of them, are, many of them are. Many of them are waiting renovation, and many of them were purchased by uh, Solidaire, I think the company is called, mm -hmm. who are a property developer, mm -hmm. who have, um, who have their, who have ownership of many sites around Lebanon. But it's, it, it's, it, from from what I understand, it's just a process of time. But maybe it's not so different from somewhere like London or Istanbul, where there's no rights for squatters, so kind of don't bother. I thought, I, for me, it seemed there was a different aspect of um, ownership of property or land, given that there's so many people who've been displaced who live there, there's so many refugees who live in Lebanon. I yeah. thought maybe a different kind of con concept around ideas of home or yeah. um, personal space. Yeah, well, there's the equivalent of a third of Lebanese, Lebanon's population of refugees in the country mm. right now, yeah. But also as well, I guess there's also a relationship to, you know, these sites around the country were also sites of, you know, massacres yeah. as well so there's, 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 there may be other reasons that people aren't um, willfully reappropriating mm -hmm. parts of the city whilst others are being commercially regenerated mm -hmm.
Well, I'll just draw that to a close for the time being. Um, thanks for that. Um, we may have some time to talk a bit more about Levin at the end of the program, but for now, uh, we'll move on, if we may, uh, to Sarah Jasban, who covered the uh, workshop that was at the ICA uh, early this month. Actually, no, early this yeah, last month, uh, September the 1st, um, uh, called On Cripping. Um, for the sake of just trying to cover that subject a little bit, uh, many people might not be aware of the, the subject itself, what cripping is. Um, perhaps we'll start with that and uh, and talk about where the, the sort of the ideas of that came from and uh, and why they, they they decided that term yeah um i i was really struck by the fact that no one i spoke to before going to the event had even heard of the word crip um so it's it's a term that's been around since um it's been around for a while actually i think it began in around the 70s and is a kind of political reclaiming of the word cripple um so it's a kind of quite um, all-embracing approach to um, identities formed in sickness and ill health. So rather than focusing on disability, it's it's looking at chronic illness as well or mel- mental illnesses. Um, so taking a non-hierarchical approach to disability. Yeah, and it's a way to kind of address uh, the, what you were talking about. We talked about earlier actually about the non-visual or the non-visible. Mm. Uh, physical, I wouldn't. Uh, what what not might not be visible to the, you know, where for yeah. instance someone that can't walk is using either a cane or a wheelchair. So it's a non-visual cue yeah. that is perhaps not being uh, acknowledged, and this, in a way, this term enables a kind of subject matter to be dealt with or spoken about that perhaps wouldn't otherwise be given, as you said, a platform, um, and. In the, in the terms of the, how this was addressed, we, the four artists or, and writers were involved. Do you want to talk about how, what, you know, how they sort of addressed this subject and how they came together? Yeah, it was it was quite interesting. So the event came out the fact that um, Leah Clements, um, the lead artist, um, had applied to do a residency at the Wising Centre um, and invited um, five other artists to join her who also identified as Crips. Um, and so the the event was um, there were four of the group there, um, two of the members weren't present, um, and I'm not actually sure why, but I wondered whether that might be because they were experiencing ill health on the day, um, which was quite interesting um, because I think there was a lot of discussion around who I think because um, for example, if you are someone who is suffering from a chronic illness a lot of the time you may be housebound or even bedbound and so can't always make it to an event like that um and have um you lack a lot of political visibility as well if you if you're not able to to get on the streets and protest or to be at a public event and speak in front of a group of people um so there was a lot of discussion around simply the fact of being present in the room um, and who is and isn't able to be. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so these four artists, th- their work as well, it reflects that. Um, I know Leah Clement's work, one work sticks in my mind actually that I remember seeing recently where she made a VR work and uh, it was sort of in the middle of the space was a sort of, I think like a, a mattress or foam, memory foam mm. so, sort of bed. And then we, you put on a VR headset and 
the image that you're seeing, which is one of the best VR works actually I've seen, uh, is you're in a, a bedroom and it's a sort of a bit sort of grungy or a bit sort of, you know, home, you know, it's just sort of a generic but not particularly well looked after bedroom. Um, and it's this sort of chronic feeling of being, that's the limit of yeah. the world that we inhabit. And, you know, if you think about the nature of VR, which is always about moving through worlds or exploring this kind mm -hmm. of kaleidoscopic endlessness of technological development, I think Leah Clemens rather cannily and rather wittily and very truthfully really uh, inserted a kind of limit to that which was a physical experience and one's physical experience ultimately being bed bound yeah. um, but in any case um, there was some thoughts that you had about the lineup itself do you want to talk about I mean that as well like I mean it's sort of interesting what you raise about the actual lineup yeah so the the four artists who were speaking um it was addressed at one point in the afternoon that um, a lot of the conversation was around um, not having a voice um, or being invisible as a crit. Um, but the the four artists who were there were all white, female, young and not visibly disabled. Um, and so there was questions around, I mean, critness is meant to be an inherently intersectional um movement and it felt like um there was a, a problem there with that fact um that is actually something that the group were highly aware of and they were just at the very outset of um they'd only just formed really they'd only been working together for a few months and that was in the kind of run-up to the residency and during the residency they were hoping i mean one of the the points of it was to start forming more of a, a community or network of, of um, identifying people in the UK. So I think one of their aims was to grow that network and reach out to other people, maybe of, of um, different mm -hmm. identity groups or to ju just build a more intersectional network for themselves um, and to find new languages and, and new kind of mechanisms for... Mm -hmm. for reaching out yeah and of course i feel like we have to address that we are all four white able-bodied yeah. people yeah. sitting here too uh, at that point um but they you do mention uh joanna hedver and her book mm. uh sick woman theory from 2016 do you want to talk a bit about that book yeah i mean hedver was actually an artist who all four of the speakers referred to um and the text is actually a, a really inspiring quite radical read um i think she does a oh yeah i think heather does a really good job of talking about kind of laying the groundwork for that intersectional basis to crypt theory um and i think she also does a, a fantastic job of talking about the the issue of invisibility i mean she there's a very powerful quote um where she's talking about being bad bound during the black lives matter protests um in america during 2016 where she just uh, wrote so as I lay there unable to march hold up a sign shout a slogan that would be heard or be visible in any traditional capacity as a political being the central question of sick women th sick women theory formed how do you throw a brick through the window of a bank if you can't get out of bed so there was a lot of discussion around that but also um, Heather also lays out in that um, text 
um, a kind of a wider point that is also discussed throughout crip theory of um, the kind of politics of care and, and the need for collective care as well um, and the kind of critique of a very kind of more neoliberal approach to care um, in the 21st century. Absolutely, and also because it really does touch upon the necessity of the, you know, to get better mm. um, in order to go back to work. And if you think about, I suppose, in this country, certainly, you know, post-war ideas of uh, NHS and also, um, you know, being looked after is ultimately for that betterment so of society. So you can go back to work and continue you know, and to continue. be a productive member. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in a sense this kind of crypt theory enables a kind of different or more politicised position perhaps around what it means yeah. to be able-bodied within that discourse. Yeah, I mean, there was um, a, lot of the, a lot of the speakers and literature around crypt theory talks about um, crypt identity or just illness being a kind of unintended bodily resistance to capitalism and a, a system that is built upon kind of... I mean... That, that feeling of burnout is something experienced by a lot of people and it's actually autoimmune diseases have been dubbed a kind of western disease because they are so prevalent in the west in a in a culture of kind of overwork and um kind of privileging efficiency over care and resilience yeah. I mean, it's certainly interesting the, no the notion of self-organisation here, and we've talked about that in previous shows. Actually, uh, you, you mentioned Julia Smith's article, mm. uh, "Health v Wealth," and she talks a bit about that. How these other kinds of modes of uh, collective care may may you know may occur in our society, or certainly in the art world. Let's say because there is a sort of uh, ability to maybe galvanise or group together people, seemingly in a way that perhaps other parts of society have a I mean, they do. I mean, of course they do. I mean, there's many community art centres and community groups. Um, can you talk about this sort of the, the the place of both the ro the role of arts and also the place of more general community groups? Mm, um, I think I think um, there was a kind of there was so the the event formed part of informations or mm -hmm. information, which was um, a series of events put on by the ICA that were all about um, ways of addressing how the ICA could be reimagined through a kind of non-conforming to ideas of normality or mm. normalcy. Um, and I think uh, Leah especially talked about how it was encouraging how kind of responsive the art world and especially Wising and the ICA were to the ideas that they were putting forward. But also at the same time, she was also quite critical in some respects of the art world and the fact that the art world is also, despite taking a kind of liberal, often adopting kind of liberal values, um, is actually quite capitalist in, in certain respects in terms of it's, it's very much based on a culture of overwork and um, it's quite a cutthroat environment in many respects um, and so there's this kind of this balance between the fact that it's a, a sector that's in many ways beginning to listen but still not quite woken up to it, 
to some of these issues within the way it's organised. So, for example, um, the group, one of the aims of the group is to set up a sort of consultancy aspect where they'll work with art galleries and art organisations to help them um, find ways of being more kind of... um, to better accommodate people with... um, different forms of of ill health essentially so things like um, providing spaces for people to lie down or have time alone for example if they have um, chronic fatigue or um, mental illnesses I guess but also in the base level though there's an opening up of communication that has to be done you know, in order for those even, those conversations to even take place in an institution or any kind of organisation, let alone the then the material infrastructure then that may enable that to happen, um, and particularly I can think of many left wing organisations <laughs> where there's there is no resources to hand, um, so it mm. does become a question of you know, it's quite hard, I think. Yeah, I was just going to say, one thing that strikes me is, um, in terms of how you might work with institutions on this, is that very, if it was a gallery, certainly small-scale galleries don't have any HR department, so this would be something about facilitating the employees' needs, but something you'd, you'd hopefully discuss with someone who's looking after the welfare of all the staff in the building, but often, yeah, yeah think, who yeah. do you turn to when it's... Yeah. And it's very much to do with the... Um, just employment rights, really, in terms of who... How yeah. to not feel... Um, in an inferior position to your the person who pays your wage how do how can you assert those rights within the workplace yeah, for yourself and other exactly. people i guess it's about um this aspect of collective care that we were talking about a few minutes ago um this this desire to to look after each other and to kind of acknowledge health is a fluctuating thing um that and also that illness is something that probably will kind of occur in all of our lifetimes um, so mm. yeah, being more aware, and I think that was the that was probably the the most important thing that came out of the event was just the fact that it was talking about issues which a lot of people don't necessarily think about in their day to day lives. If you're if you're lucky enough to be relatively healthy and well, then you don't necessarily think about what it would be if if you weren't. Mm. Yeah, and also, I mean, it brings to my mind also AIDS activism and also the interest in return to some of those ideas that uh, fostered those collective forms of care and, yeah, the sort of how that's also become a kind of present subject in art discourse at the moment. Um, it feels that that's also part of the context through which this subject is coming back into focus, I think. But I, I do think the aspect of self-organising that, that the group of are mm. like enacting is really interesting. Did they yeah. say anything about how they came together, about how that network was is being formed? Well, I think Leah described the fact that she felt that the that she had many people around her who were also experiencing these things, but there wasn't a properly kind of there wasn't a proper community or network in place. So there were there were lots of people experiencing this, but no kind of wider conversation between everyone. Um, so when she applied for the residency and, and was given it, I think she decided to work with the people close to hand who she knew already did publicly or yeah publicly identify as Crips. Um, but the, the ambition is to extend outward through the, the platform given to them by Wising. At that moment, I think we may have to move on um, to Amy Bird, who 
I think you were in Rotterdam a few months ago it now. It was a while ago now, yeah. If you can it's remember spring. those uh, that journey. <laughs> I can. Um, um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, we'll come back if we can, Sarah, to some of those subjects, um, uh, if we can. Uh, but first, let's, let's go back to uh, to Amy and her time in Rotterdam. Um, there's lots to talk about here. You kind of give a good snapshot of uh, yes. what was going on then. Um, should we talk a bit about the, the city itself? I think that's yeah, as you start sure. your subject. Yeah. yeah, it was the first my my first time to Rotterdam. Um, uh, I've been very interested in Witwit was a real uh, is a institution I've been following for a long time mm-hmm. um, and never visited. So if, you know, I was felt very excited to go. Rotterdam itself was, um, I mean. Underwhelming. I mean, I don't know what to say without sounding very insulting about it, but um, it wasn't. It's not the prettiest. It's not. It's not. It's not as picturesque as Amsterdam. Let's put it that way. It's yeah. really. Um, it, we got, it got absolutely demolished in the war. I mean, it's yeah. very little um, Dutch history there in terms of what you might envisage if you imagine the canals and like, these kind of Dutch townhouses that doesn't really exist anymore. So it isn't. It, I mean, I kind of got off the train and it looks like like Coventry or Milton Keynes or I mean yeah. the stuff from that kind of post-war regeneration certainly but uh, I mean once you're once I spent some more time in the city it is incredibly interesting in terms of how it has been developed through the Limbarn this kind of a very kind of radically well progressive shopping centre and also the the public sculpture that is dotted throughout the city mm. is really impressive really in terms of what the the council has really got behind to kind of commission quite you know high profile artists who have permanent uh, works installed across the city. Yeah, you mentioned some of those names: uh, Klaus Oldenburg, Susan Phillips, Paul McCarthy. Paul McCarthy is oh. quite—it's um, a gnome holding a sex toy, which you encounter on the high street. So, I mean, it's unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> and then also, Nam Garbo's unbelievably impressive um, untitled monument is really um, striking. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, give Rotterdam a bit of uh, credit here. They do have uh, Rem Koolhaas's uh, yes. OMA and numerous. Uh, Striking architectural. I didn't actually, yeah, and I didn't go as far down to the port. I think a lot of the development is happening yeah. on the port front, and I didn't make it that far. Um, it is incredibly windy too, which I wasn't expecting because it really whips off the hook of Holland, and it, it was it wasn't it was it wasn't what I was expecting. I mean, and it's also the largest port in Europe, and it, you know this kind of it's a, I got a very strong sense of Dutch history through being there. Through mm. this is a in terms of the colonial history of. Holland, this is like the, the, the fulcrum of it, and that's why it was targeted very specifically by um, the Germans for bombing it. I mean, mm. it completely destabilised and was a significant manoeuvre in the war, totally. So, leaving that context to one side, yeah. let's talk about some of the institutions that, that are there. Um, um, we talk about the Boymans Museum. Boy, I mean, the Boymans Museum was incredible. It's an, an amazing collection. Mm. I was actually not expecting to find a space like that in Rotterdam I think it has a really I mean it's um, a combination of two private collections that have been joined together um, and really speaks to um, kind of the, the golden age of Dutch yeah. renaissance um, it goes back into history and also encompasses design and has a lot of uh, quite interesting um, contemporary artists in the collection as well um, the way that the building is also has this patchwork architectural aspect to it it's been it has a central building that's been added to at various stages so it's kind of speaks to the rest of rotterdam in terms mm-hmm. of its skyline um and then uh i don't know lots of little things to find one, one thing i i couldn't find his name but there was um uh, a project or like an artwork that's installed across the gallery which is where the director commissioned an artist to produce a palette to paint each gallery a different colour which the, the artist has kind of 
conceived to be an optimum conditions to view the work. So it's very idiosyncratic space, quite mm-hmm. experimental, a very different approach to working with a public collection. And I think that's something that I found across all the institutions that I visited was a very strong awareness of the public um, in the sense that they're, they, you know, they're conscious this is a publicly funded gallery, mm-hmm. this is a national collection. How do we engage our public within the work of the, the programme of the gallery, of the institution? And that was certainly something I found across all the, the venues that I visited. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was at yeah. Boyman's was for ostensibly to see the gelatin show, um, which I also, I didn't, I was, I was aware of gelatin, aware of the very many mm. kind of projects I've done in the past. Um, this was not one that I was expecting to encounter. And for those who maybe haven't read uh, the letter in the, uh, in the magazine this month, um, basically I, I turned up on the day of the opening and they're still installing so it was very confusing the whole situation was quite confusing because there was lots of technicians around still but I was ushered into a small dressing room where there is a um, series of clothing rails with very sheer nylon bodysuits of all different shades of all different skin tones um, that had male and female genitals uh, sewn on in wool and padded breasts from the padding of bras um, and so you're invited to either undress or put them on over your clothes. I kept my clothes on and just kind of slipped one yeah. over the top. And then I kind of turned a corner and there were just monumental piles of shit, yeah. sculptures. There's big, three big ones on Persian rugs and that, and that is, constitutes the whole installation. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was the yeah. experience. And so I guess you're kind of walking around the space and you're wearing a naked bodysuit and you're kind of looking at excrement and I think it was having some kind of existential experience i mean i I wasn't sure i really struggled and was quite it was quite um an experience to go through when you know the artists are also there and it's very much a performance you know i think they're they're keen on getting the audience out of their comfort zone Mm. uh, which they really succeed you describe uh, a brief exchange yes. uh, with one of the members of the, ba- of the band. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a band photo, isn't it? Um, I would say Wolfgang is the one that's, that's performing a squat. That, that, yeah. that, that was a gentleman that I spoke to. Um, he was very nice. I mean, I would say, if anything, they're very well made. The sculptures were made mm. in, their, in their studio in Vienna, and then they were shipped in pieces to Rotterdam and then assembled within the space. And it's impressive because it's mm. a, you know, it really is floor-to-ceiling sculpture. It's quite heavy-duty work. Um, and I spoke to him about the installation and how they approached the work. Uh, they do, you know, I wondered whether, you know, who, which one of you wanted to make the shit sculptures, yeah. you know, which term was it out of the five of you. But he said that they all work collectively and it's always a, it's a decision that they agree on together and they work to figure out the, the formal qualities of the work. I kind of discussed, I, you know, because I mentioned Franz West because yeah. of... Of course, yeah. and he said, oh, of course, it's like Franz yeah. West, you know, we kind of have this sensibility of um, making big sculpture. Um, I was briefed beforehand to not mention Herman Nitsch or anything to do with Viennese actionism because that is a no-no. They do not like to any reference to that. So How curious. Because they find it it's too obvious or it's completely different or it's not... I mean, I agree, it is kind of different from that. With, but, you know, the yeah. kind of the um, kind of machismo that comes through yeah. this work and what it's saying. Yeah, you saying. mentioned that, in fact, you, you say you find the work... I, I was just really... Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult to uh, experience the work in the space and also be confronted with the artists right in front of you and trying to... You know, there are other people, other press people there who are also having interesting conversations. There's also an Austrian TV show who was recording something, and I was like, I can't, I can't really talk about this. But I kind of... I mentioned, you know... I. I wanted to, to him to explain where it comes from and like what is this gesture doing 
um, and he was quite insulted by that. He was insulted by the, the critique um, of it being some overly macho gesture. Mm. I just couldn't imagine a female artist making this type of work, basically. No, I can't... No, I mean, this is a very... Um, pure sense of humour that I think comes from you know a certain generation of men perhaps yeah uh, which you know it, it speaks for itself and it I kind pure. of explained this to him yeah. and he he was very insulted and then his his retort was well we don't have access to menstruation I was like okay um, yeah I don't know what to make of that at all yeah um, I don't know what to make of that I don't know I think he actually said they have another series called Kakabet uh, which is the alphabet but in feces as well so this is a continuation of a theme it's a, it's a body um, work it's a body it's a body <laughs> work um, so that, that was yeah. that was Boyman's um, but then I met the very interesting and helpful and really interesting um, director who, who gave me a tour I should say that I was still wearing the bodysuit whilst I was taking on the tour of the museum so I went out into the collection and people were staring at me and I was you know I had this very conspicuous very conspicuous outfit. bodysuit yeah, yeah. on um, and we kind of walked around he, he was showing me the highlights really and they had this amazing Villa um, Hill of Rebe uh, piece yeah. that there was a recent acquisition that they paired with the Kandinsky it was just a really beautiful room and very very thoughtful um, and they were really thinking about how to kind of use this puppet funding to kind of really draw interesting conversations out and revisit the history of the collection and then alongside that is the depot which is being developed which is genuinely a really interesting project and I would go back to see how it's functioning as this open access model where you can go and request to see any artwork that is in within seven of the stores that they have in the city. Yeah, this kind of quite an impressive project. So this uh, is a co- uh, sort of a, col- a conglomeration of various sites where these artworks yeah. of so the Boymans have been held. Exactly. And now it's going to be all in one... Yeah, seven sites, which is yeah. enormous. I don't know how they manage that, you yeah. know, even in terms of operations, but they're consolidating all of, this, all of the sites into one space, directly adjacent to the museum, um, and it will be it's due, due to be completed in, in a few years' time and then it will be open to anyone and there will be a very small exhibition space but mostly it's a functioning um, store mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's going to be completely transparent. He was keen to kind of demonstrate the work of the institution and how to really pique public interest within the inner goings-on of, of the museum. So I thought it was a really kind of really imaginative um, development to kind of be leading on. Mm-hmm. And as, as he said, that many other institutions are really interested in this model particularly in terms of how collections continue to engage with their audiences. Um, so after then, I went to Vit de Vit, which is just down the road. Yeah, I was going to say, it's on the same road, isn't it? On the it? same road, yeah. yeah. You kind of wander down, there's a tram, you kind yeah. of cross, cross a little river, and there's, on the other end of the city, um, is a very, very leafy, very beautiful um, cafe culture style. It, it, I remember uh, now. Place that cafe is of, rather nice. Yeah, it was yeah. Just, It was spring, everyone had sunglasses yeah. on, we're drinking beers outside, it was like, you know... Yeah. Very yeah. nice. Um, and there was, unfortunately, um, it was a disappointment that the other more project spaces weren't open. Showroom Mama was some, one that I had mm. in mind that was closed, but I was aware the art school is also very close by. And uh, Vit de Vit is on Vit de Vit Strata. Yeah. Um, and so I went there. Yeah, and you mentioned, I think we'll get into some of the more other sides of the Vit de Vit, uh, but let's talk about the, the show that's on at the moment, which uh, so coincides with Sophia Hernandez Chong Koi. Yeah. And she's recently been appointed. Yeah. Um, she was appointed last year, and this, yeah. this exhibition was her inaugural yeah. uh, program. This is the start of her program. And I, if I remember rightly, the tenure of the director is is over a period of time. I think it's a specific allotted tenure, yes. I think. Uh, is it three or four? I can't remember. I can't remember exactly. But, but uh, So they have a constant ch- turnover of directors mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the previous one was Daphne Ayas. 
And so, so she's coming in and she's presenting. Is it three? Are they three South American artists? They're not. No, Anna no, is not. Yeah, um, no. And Pamela Rosencrantz isn't. No. But it really speaks to the, I guess, the politics of the global South. Really, yeah. oh, the one group show. Um, is looking at the resources of the Amazon and how that has been manifested in three artists' works. Pamela Rosencrantz is, is taking Amazon, uh, as in Amazon, the book, yes. the online oh, right, shop, okay. Amazon, and then she kind of made an algorithm out of that and can produce this liquid that was kind of pouring across the floor and had altered the environment. So that was a more subtle shift and riffing mm-hmm. off the idea of, of Amazon. Um, and then Anarchy Yi had made, uh, it's a film that I'd seen before actually, um, of the flavor genome, which is uh, using botanicals mm. from um, Amazon rainforests. And that's, a, I, I think I've seen it. It's a 3D film. It is 3D film, yeah. yep. Um, and then the third artist was one that I hadn't seen before, but was really um, interesting. I'm just trying to see where her name is. Susanna Mecha. Yeah. Mecha as um, she had made, she worked with uh, local tribes in Brazil in, in the Amazon to make. Um, handmade papers which were then dip dyed in traditional using traditional dyeing methods and made a really beautiful walls of um, paper displays of very uh, abstract liquid forms and then had a series of tree fibers that had also been soaked in these traditional dyeing methods and that was much more of an educational project that yeah. should be continuing over a long period of time and then on the second floor was an installation by Teresa Margolis which is thinking about um, immigration between Venezuela and Colombia um, and how uh, migrant workers constantly move between this space um, and she had asked uh, a series of manual laborers, she had paid them to carry stones from one side of the border to another and then had taken the t-shirts that they were wearing and encased them in plastic bags and over a course of the, the duration of the exhibition one t-shirt would be removed from the bag and then smeared across the window in the gallery mm. and then that t-shirt would be then be encased within a concrete block and stamped with their initials. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, really nice work. Um, oh, I know what I say, what that I didn't get to mention was okay. actually a very beautiful archival display of Jeff Gies, um which is on the ground floor of the gallery, which was um, to do with yeah. an exhibition that took place in the 90s called What Are We Having For Dinner and that was just a very oh yes um, I think Jamie Stevens presented it in his Cubit present in his Cubit right. tenureship a few years ago yeah. but it was um, where uh, Rotterdam families in a working class area of Rotterdam uh, were broadcast having th- dinner on television I remember that now yeah. um, let's quickly so, talk about yeah. the title of the because we're running out of time here okay. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the, the, the subject of the name of the gallery itself uh, yes. and the particular the, the sort of ideas of maybe changing that name um. so Wit of It is um, incredibly contentious because the gallery is uh, sensibly committed to deconstructing uh, the colonial legacies of, of Dutch history really through this very post-colonial programme um, but up until recently until, until last year they hadn't really considered the origins of its name. I mean, ostensibly, it's named after the street it's on, um, which is named after Cornelius de Witt, who was um, a Dutch trader. Well, I mean, I think he was like a... He was a trader and yeah. kind of went to Jakarta and um, artificially inflated the price of clove by destroying mm. all the clove trees in Jakarta. I mean, horrendous, awful um, actions throughout you know, the, you know, the 18th, 17th century. Um, and so he, he's named, he's named on the street and, he, yeah. and the institution is named after him, but it's never really been directly addressed or critiqued through the programme. And so it was instituted by a project by Wendelian van Oldenburg called Cinema Orlando, which is part of her Venice Biennial project in 2017. And um, 
coming out of that presentation at Victor a series of activists in the city and artists and writers came together and wrote an open letter to the institution saying, basically yeah. saying, what is in your name? You have to kind of think about how as, uh, the process of decolonization can take place. It, it needs to take place, really. And how are they, about, how are they instituting that? I think there was a series of conversations that took place around the or what's in the name, the origins of yeah. the name. Um, but there is no easy answer to this. Mm. It's not a simple you know, process of renaming. Um, how do you deal with, how do you actually tackle and discuss and mm. generate productively uh, debate around mm -hmm. history, I mm. think. Um, and so at the moment, all the, the only signal towards this is a very discreet um, Line. It's a, it's, a, it's a small text saying recently this bit of it has been considering the origins of its name. Mm -hmm. And actually, I read that um, before my trip. I had an invitation in the post to uh, the group exhibition on the Amazon, and I, I noticed this line on the invite, and I was just so struck by that. I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't really mm. know what it meant at the time. And so it's interesting that they're kind of obviously adopting it as within the institutional voice to signal uh, a possibility for change, or at least a process for questioning mm. that is ongoing. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's actually, it's a difficult, I mean, of course, these are difficult subjects, because uh, the excision of it, or the kind of remove, the blank removal of it, mm. doesn't solve the problem necessarily. Uh, and so, and neither no. does this, and also once you've signaled the complexity of it, it also then just becomes a signaling. And is that then enough? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so thorny. But I think that what I was impressed by was holding this ambiguous question in mm. the air and really sitting with this very uncomfortable problem and making it public and really mm. demonstrate that it, it isn't a question that can be solved easily at all. Mm. But at least it's you know necessary to ask a question of it. Absolutely. Okay. I feel like we are running out of time here, so I will start wrapping up the show, which leads me to say a huge thank you to all three speakers this evening: uh, Tom Snow, Sarah Jespan, Amy Bird. Thank you so much for taking part in tonight's program. Uh, if uh, to listeners, uh, all these uh, subjects that we've discussed today are available in the current issue of Art Monthly. That's the October issue, which is out now. And uh, leaves me to say good night and a huge thank you for listening. Thanks. Goodbye.